Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey there, ladies and gentlemen, Oliver here. I am very excited this week to bring you an interview with Kevin Talbot. He is a general partner at Relay Ventures, which is a VC firm based between the Bay Area and Toronto. Um, they're investors in both Bird and Bird Canada, among others. I had a great interview with Kevin, Re, his firm, and how they're thinking about micromobility investments and the wider context of venture capital in this SoftBank-dominated world. It was a great discussion. Before we dig in, I also want to do a shout out for a few things that you should be thinking about if you're interested in the micromobility space. Firstly, if you have not already, go and get your tickets for the Micromobility America Summit coming up on April 22nd, 23rd in Richmond in the Bay Area. It'll be an amazing event. We're expecting over a thousand people. It's in the old Ford Jeep factory. It's an amazing building. We had our um, first Micromobility Summit there in January in 2019. It's very exciting. I'll be emceeing. Uh, Horace, my co-host, will be keynoting and we'll have folks from all over the world, including the leads from Bird and Jump and Lime. They're speaking about the best new ideas in the industry. Also, if you like this podcast, you'll probably like our premium offering, Triple M, Micromobility Memberships, which will give you access to exclusive calls with Horace, some swag and discounted event tickets and more. Check both of those out at micromobility.io. And with that, here is the interview with Kevin. And welcome back. We have with us today Kevin Talbot from Relay Ventures. How are you going today, Kevin? I'm great. And you? I'm doing very well. I'm very excited to have you on, especially after having seen you uh, on the panel uh, for Capital for Micromobility in Berlin. I think you have some really interesting insights into the space. And so I'm looking forward to uh, digging in. But maybe the best way to do this with the audience who may not know who you are is to have you introduce yourself and your background and how you ended up in VC and then a little bit about Relay Ventures as well. Oh, great. In terms of background, I'm the co-founder of Relay, which we started in 2008 with my partner, John Albright. Relay was formed at a time, really interesting time, what I call the first mobility revolution back in 2008, because we were the first fund that was raised exclusively to focus on mobile computing. And we used to have the tagline, Strictly Mobile. And in fact, we ran a conference for 10 years called Strictly Mobile to really explain to everybody what this mobile computing revolution was going to be all about. Right. Over the years, as our thesis has become a reality that basically everything is mobile today, we started the evolution sort of a decade later. Right now, I'm focused on what I'm calling the second mobility revolution, which is you know the movement of people and goods which I believe is entirely enabled by mobile computing. Because if you just think about it, you don't have a shared electric scooter without mobile innovations from the last decade. So I think of the scooter as a smartphone with two wheels because you locate it, you unlock it, you pay for it all with your phone. And you know the brain itself is the result of the smartphone supply chain and, and the resultant low-cost GPS chips and modems and displays and other technologies. So that's how I sort of get from 2008 and the original incarnation of our fund around mobility to what I'm focusing on today, which is mobility, albeit slightly, slightly different. It sounds like you and Horace have been talking. 
Have we been? Oh, you think we've been talking? Well, it just uh, your thesis is a very, a very similar in many ways. Yeah, you know, look. So we, as a firm, tend to be. People have told us that we're pretty academic in terms of how we approach this business. And there's a typical operating model in venture capital where it's effectively standing at the river and looking at everything flowing by and picking out the things you think are interesting. And what we've done, the way we've developed our business since 2008 has been to say, what areas do we think are really interesting? Let's go very, very deep into those areas. Let's have some expertise and then let's go look for companies that fit what we think is in important and evolving. So we have a four vertical market focus areas at Relay, mobility being one of them. Property technology is the second. The third is uh, financial technology, known as fintech. And the fourth is our newest vertical, which is sports and entertainment technology. And there are, you know, there's a lot of overlap, especially between our mobility investments and our prop tech investments for obvious reasons. But that's how we approach uh, venture. And we're now investing out of our fourth fund. We've got 21 people, three offices, one in Menlo Park, San Francisco, and Toronto. And then we've got portfolio companies across Canada and the United States and, and actively looking throughout Europe as well. Great. And for context as well, for folks who are just maybe, you know, not super well-versed on understanding, you know, the seed, Series A, B, three, you know, right through, where do you guys typically focus? What we do is uh, something which we call life cycle investing, which is a small investment to get started and get to know founders and then follow with an outsized investment. And so very typically what that means is we'll get involved with the company at its seed round. It does not necessarily mean that we will lead the round, but we'll put money into a seed round. But unlike the seed investors who effectively put all of their money into the seed round and reserve a small amount for the pro rata at later rounds, we do the inverse, which is to say, if things are going well, we may be the Series A lead investor. And really, the premise for this comes from the fact that venture investing is really a people picking business. They never told me this when I was in, in business school, and I would have paid more attention to the organizational behavior and human resources type of courses, which no one paid attention to, because we all thought you know venture was about technology and markets and finance. And in reality, what it is, is finding entrepreneurs who are exceptional. And you really can't do that when you're in competition to get a, a financing done and there are compressed timelines and you have no opportunity for the investors to get to know the founders. And more importantly, I think, for the founders to get to know the investors. And so these things come together really, really rapidly. And I think that is opposite to the way it really ought to be. So when we approach things as a life cycle investor, we may put some money in at the seed round. We will most likely not take a board seat, but we will come and observe at the board and we will leverage our resources and spend as much time as we can with the entrepreneur to uh, successfully get to the next round that we may or may not lead, but hopefully we may you know, participate in an outsized way. And during that time, we really get to know the entrepreneurs and they get to know us. 
Awesome. I'd love to see how that's played out. So you, there are two investments that I'm really keen to dig into in this. One is uh, obviously the bird investment and the other one is the populist investment because we've actually had Regina on the podcast. Yeah. And so, yeah. So just understanding how that has worked for both of those investments. So our investment in Regina is actually a perfect example of our model because she had raised, substantially raised her seed round from a very well-respected investor here in the Bay Area. We came in, we wrote a check into that round. I'm an observer on her board. My effort right now is to spend a lot of time with her around strategy. We whiteboarded updated strategy just about two weeks ago. This morning, I was on an interview call for her. She's hiring, and uh, so she runs candidates past me. We've been strategizing around pricing. And so this is the perfect and ideal way for us to really get to know each other. Hopefully, I'm helpful to her. She keeps asking for help, so I'm assuming that she finds that helpful. Yeah. My services are free, so maybe she's getting you know the value that she's paying. But certainly, it's giving me a very, very good insight into how she thinks and uh, what she values and how she's trying to build the company. And we have, within Relay's portfolio across all of our verticals, we have done this repeatedly over the last 10 years. Most of the companies that have been our winners all started with our very early participation and getting to know the founders and then writing out size checks and, and remaining the largest investor in the company. So she's a perfect example of you know, how we like to start things off. Our investment in Bird is um, sort of the, the opposite end of the spectrum because you know, we invested in Bird a little bit later. So it was a, a late stage investment for us. It was, it was a very large check for us. We still you know, went through our process and spent a lot of time with Travis, a lot of time with his management team, you know, got to know the team. Because again, it really is about picking the people that, that you're becoming partners with. And it's a long-term partnership. It has to work for both sides. Cool. I'm really curious about as you if we go back to what you were saying originally about your thesis and the fact that mobile computing really, you know, it was going to change everything. And then 10 years later, it really has. And now that you're looking at focusing on micromobility. So the bird investment obviously is one of your plays in this space. And you, you and I had a chance to chat about it and, and how you're thinking about that space hardware plays, software plays, operators, et cetera. What was the motivation for the investment in Bird? I mean, when you looked around at the space, what was unique about them? Well, so again, coming back to, you know, what I said about how we study markets and we go very deep, we knew that there was a transformational shift that was happening. We had the ability to be tracking all of the companies in the space. Our first choice would always be the, the company that created the industry you know, the company that was the largest, the company that was the most advanced. Typically, we would not have an opportunity since we're an early stage investor. You know, once the train left the station, you typically wouldn't be able to get on that train. And so we just networked our way in, went and met with Travis and uh, developed a relationship that, you know, got us into the transaction. We're not on the board. We're not the largest investor, but we're, you know, very supportive investors and very happy to be in the company. And again, it comes down to, we thought this was the winning team and this was the winning company. Because very often what happens, especially for small VC funds like ours, is that we would find the opportunity in micromobility to be compelling. And then we would go look for a small operator where 
the amount of money that we can invest would be meaningful where we would you know typically get on the board and we just looked at the market we looked at at what we thought was going to happen and we basically said the likelihood of a small operator you know might be in two or three cities ever becoming you know the next bird is pretty slim and therefore why don't we put that money into the real deal and that's the the rationale behind the investment Absolutely. And then in terms of, you know, you could have gone into, well, when we think about micromobility, we can see that there's a there's a very substantial kind of growth curve, as you say, in some ways, it's like the peace dividends of the smartphone wars, these like lightweight electric vehicles. I mean, I can totally see it, right, which is you want to go and invest in that. Why specifically a shared operator for the shared micromobility and not, for example, like someone like Boosted or a another player in the lightweight electric vehicle space? So I, what I basically do in studying a market is I build out a matrix of how I think it's going to play out and what all the various parts are. And then what we do is we go and we try to fill in the boxes on the matrix. So our view is that the same model that exists for vehicles, for cars, is going to exist in micromobility. Just because you take a car share service doesn't mean and is not mutually exclusive to you owning a car or to renting a car, let's say, when you are when you need a different kind of vehicle than what you have or perhaps when you're traveling. So we think that that's going to happen in micromobility. And so in e-bikes, I'm looking at shared services and I'm also looking at e-bike companies selling directly to end users for personally owned e-bikes. And in uh, electric scooters, we obviously have made our bet in shared scooters, but I am looking at all of the companies that are designing and selling scooters for the personally owned market. You know, just today I had to drop my car off for new tires and it's about a three mile walk home. I have a whole variety of scooters. I've got my own fleet of scooters, but I tossed one into the back and, you know, I drove that scooter the three miles back home. The town that I live in down here in uh, on the peninsula doesn't have shared scooters. So that's not an option for me. But this is, you know, perfectly ideal because it folds up, goes in the back of the car and I could pull it out and, you know, drive back after this interview. I will do the reverse and go pick up my car. So, yeah, yeah. We, we believe that people are going to buy scooters. People are going to rent scooters or, you know, use shared scooter services. And then within the buying category, we think it will stratify the same way that cars do. There will be mass market, there will be mid market, there will be high end. We think the market's going to be big enough that, you know, there can be players in those different levels. Same thing will happen in in e-bikes in our view. One of the things that I remember you and I having a chance to talk about on the side of the stage in Berlin was something like Bird there's some level of network effects and an ability to build the moat because in operations and in, you know, app installs, et cetera. Whereas that strikes me as harder to build in the hardware space. And I'm curious about how you think about defensibility. It doesn't quite build, let's put it this way, the venture capital returns that oftentimes you're looking to try and find with, you know, you're looking for a 10 or a hundred X in order to be able to have it fit into the rest of the dynamics of a traditional fund don't necessarily come with these more capital intensive hardware based sales direct to consumer businesses or do you, am I incorrect in that assessment no I, I think that value can be created but I look at hardware a slightly different way I don't view it as a as a more capital intensive business it's just it's a different type of design engineering but I look at hardware a different way I look at hardware 
as an accessory to software. So the way I look at a business is that if you've designed a piece of hardware and it's a one and done sale and you can't have an ongoing relationship with that customer, that is not that interesting to me. But if there can be a continual relationship with the consumer, so there's something unique about the hardware that creates that ongoing relationship, then I am interested. So as an example, think about all the webcams that are out or the doorbell cams that are out. They make all their money and most of their money from the attach rate to the storage service. And so if you're just selling me a $200 camera and you've got to go through all the effort of marketing to me, acquiring me as a customer, you sell me that $200 camera, maybe it's got a bomb cost of $100, $150, whatever it is, and it's a one and done, that's a lot of work over and over again to win me back as a customer. However, when you look at, you know, why am I paying 5 or 10 or $15 a month, now you've got a really interesting recurring revenue business, not dissimilar from file storage or you know anything else that's got recurring revenue. So the question becomes, in the personally owned scooter and e-bike business, is there a similar type of integral service that is valuable enough for a consumer to continue to pay for something? And I don't know what that is. Yeah. Right. I've interviewed the CEO of Van Mouth for the Dutch guys and they, they've been exploring this space with a subscription model for their e-bikes and they're just really like, you know, that's where they see. And we actually talked about the idea of like, is there a mode there or will we see things like e-bikes actually shift to subscription models or is it going to be like a Peloton style thing where you buy the vehicle and then people buy in to, to have those? And I don't know either. I'm just, I'm also curious to like you as well. Yeah. So Peloton is, is probably the best example. And it's the only example that I have where you spend close to $2,000 and the thing doesn't work without the $39 a month subscription, right? Because yeah. you can buy the doorbell and you can buy the webcam and you don't have to subscribe for storage. The thing will still work. Now, so here's the question, you know, that I'm talking to all these guys about, which is subscription is, is one thing, but what are you achieving with the subscription? Is the subscription effectively the way you're financing the bike to me? Because if that's what it is, no, that doesn't cut it. That's not the kind of engagement I'm looking for. Yes. So what I'm really looking for is, you know, what is the valuable service that has to go that you know somebody has to pay for over the top that they'll want to pay for. So some of the models that we've seen are around insurance. Some of the models are around theft protection, you know, the guarantee of replacement if the bike can't be retrieved, things of that nature, which are interesting. Yeah, completely. I think the the bike hunters that the Van Moof guys do is certainly from a marketing perspective is I think a really capture, really captures them, uh, the, the consumer's attention. Hey, look, I want to go back and look at the landscape for micromobility uh, uh, really since so your investment in birds. So when did you do that investment? Yeah, about a year ago. So I'm really curious between since that's happened. So a year ago, obviously there was a lot of, I mean, I think it was spreading like wildfire. We were certainly very, I mean, we on the podcast here, we were watching just kind of like blown away by how quickly it, it had spread. And then since then, there's really been a bit of a tempering with cities saying, cool, okay, we're just trialing all this stuff. We're getting ourselves settled on how we want to do it. And you are seeing expansions in a lot of cities around caps, for example, of micromobility in the shared operating space. Curious how you guys as an investment community or you as an investor are thinking about that 
in that one year since you made your investment? And then two, you know, how you're looking at it for the next, you know, 12 to 24 months and, and what you think is going to happen in the regulatory space? Well, so, you know, there's, there's no question that the cities have, have taken a position that they don't want to be Ubered. And, you know, this is, this is what I've heard from them that, you know, they feel that they were unprepared when Uber and Lyft showed up and they feel that, um, you know, with new forms of micromobility, they're, they're not going to let that happen, which is fine. You know, I think three things have happened in the, in the past year. I think that, I think that from a user standpoint, people realize that alternate forms of transportation like this are real, that scooters aren't toys, that they're, you know, a logical and impactful alternate mode of transportation and consumers love the product. I think it's become more real for consumers. You know, one of the things that we were a little bit concerned about very early on was, is this um, something that tourists coming to cities are going to take advantage of. We were really interested in whether we get recurring usage from people that lived in cities. And I think that that's proven out to be the case. I think the second thing is that I think cities are, are moving from, from their defensive posture to a more proactive approach, um, recognizing that, you know, micromobility is part of the solution because vehicle congestion and failing public transit infrastructure are just too difficult to overcome. And I think that they're also recognizing that, again, consumers really like the the product. So you can't really, you know, go against that. And then I think from the operator perspective, some operators are are focused on building real sustainable businesses based on profitable unit economics. I think that that the operators will start to stratify based on who's been able to effectively do that. We always knew, you know, going into the investment that hardware in terms of reliability, dependability, design, battery technology would improve, result in improved unit economics and and that, you know, AI powered software would lead to efficiencies and effective optimization of the fleet. And I think that all of that stuff has played out in the last year. In the, you know, in the early days, there's still some press. And I think, I think sometimes the press is very lazy because what they'll tend to do is go to a, you know, an older article and then add on to it. And so people are still bringing up the, the short life cycle of, of scooters. Oh, yeah. These right? things last 30 days. Yeah. But that's, <laughs> uh, you know, like, not anymore. like that is so a year ago kind of thing. It's so last year, you know, early days, Travis went and bought off-the-shelf scooters to create an MVP to prove that the thesis that people would use these things. Yeah, you know, they, they weren't made for the kind of, of use cycles they have today, but the scooters that, that are being driven today are absolutely, you know, different, different vehicles. You know, they've got proprietary design, they've got proprietary supply chains now, they've got scale, they've got proprietary software. These things are, are lasting they're driving positive unit economics and that's how you build a, a profitable business. Totally. Well, I, and the other thing as well that I love about Bird is that they have taste in their vehicle design. And that's something that isn't necessarily the case in a lot of the scooter designs. But I like, I look at the Bird too, especially, and I think like, man, <laughs> that is a good looking scooter. And they've really nailed the design. There's one part of that as, as well, which is I'm, I'm very curious about the business models because I've seen, obviously, we've seen Bird uh trial a couple of different things they've obviously done when they didn't have the san francisco permit they went and trialed to do bird leasing program where they would go and 
drop the vehicle outside your house at night and pick it up. And it was your scooter for the day. And that was a way to get around the regulatory caps, obviously. And then obviously they're on the road as well. And they're selling the scooters directly um, as sort of consumer goods. And I'm curious how you see those different business models evolving, especially there's also one that they haven't trialed yet, which is subscriptions. And whether or not you think that will be kind of a material part of anybody, any micromobility business going forward. So I can't speak specifically for Bird and, and what they're doing. I think though that they've been very creative in experimenting with different models. And I think that we will probably see some form of, of these models in, you know, different situations and different geographies over time. But I think by and large, the vast majority of what a shared scooter operator, what their business is going to look like is having a high quality scooter, you know, fully charged where they anticipate a consumer is going to expect one to be. And um, if you can do that consistently and then, then you know, you're going to have a pretty good business. Fair. I hear you. Well, look, I wanted to dig in as well on the Bird Canada, event, Bird Canada venture. Maybe it's just easier if you explain what it is and why it was formed. Sure. So at the time we invested in Bird, they had just designed their platform business. And the platform business is effectively a, a franchise to allow an operator to start up a, a franchise in a city. We took a look at that and said, why don't we expand that and uh, do that on an entire country basis for Canada. Right. And so why was I asking about Canada? You know, Relay's uh, headquartered in Canada. We're a Canadian firm. Although we have a, a big presence in the U.S., our roots are, are in Canada. We know the country. You know, Canada's a huge country. By landmass, it's, it's slightly larger than the U.S., but it has about 11% of the population. And, you know, at 37 million people, it's slightly smaller than California. And so very often, you know, startups, especially fast growing startups, really don't have the time and attention to spend another country. And so, you know, I, I sat down with Travis and, and basically said, why don't we do this? We came to an agreement. As a result, we went and launched Bird Canada. Now, you might, next question might be, you know, what's a VC doing owning an operator? Our view was um, we could geographically go look for, you know, an entrepreneur who wants to start a, a scooter operator. Again, get back into that, you know, what, what brand are you going to build? What kind of vehicles and, you know, and how are you going to do that? As opposed to taking what we think is the best company in the space and enabling them in, in market. We don't, you know, we're not doing this ourselves because we're not operators, we're investors, but we brought on board a very, very capable operating team with tremendous amount of experience. And that is the management team. So it, it, the, the, the transaction around Bird Canada looks very much like a typical transaction for us as an investor. We happen to own a lot more of it than what we you know, typically would do. You know, that's what Bird Canada is. Now, the company launched this year in Calgary, followed by Edmonton. Province of Alberta was the first in Canada to pass legislation allowing scooters. We rolled out into Montreal shortly after the province of Quebec approved scooters. And uh, we ran a pilot in Toronto, which is kind of interesting, which I can tell you about. But in Ontario, uh, the, the government there just recently approved electric scooters under a five-year pilot program. 
And so the team, I this. Yeah. five year pilot, this is incredible. You know? It is, it is. You know, we expect Toronto to announce their program. We expect to be live in Toronto in the spring. The Bird Canada team is, is going to roll out on a very large scale. I think there's something else which is really important, which is that, you know, we've got local operators and we've got and our, and our team is a very entrepreneurial team. So they're running this as it, as if it's their own business, as opposed to putting hired country managers, you know, into a foreign land and say, go run this for us. You know, I think birds looking very carefully at, you know, why we're being successful operating their, their franchise in Canada. So there's traditional entrepreneurial ingredients that, you know, have gone into that. Absolutely. And with the, I would love to dig into the Canadian micromobility scene because I don't know a huge amount amount about it. The one thing that I do know is that Vancouver has 50% mode share on bikes and walking into the CBD. And so obviously Vancouver is an incredibly attractive market, but has for ride hailing, Uber and Lyft were entirely shut out the the entirety of the time that I was at Uber. And I don't think that that's changed substantially. Are they open? Do you know if Vancouver is open and BC is open to to scooters? Yeah, we think that uh, they will launch scooters in 2020. You know, there are a few markets, you know, that we're very interested in, Victoria and Vancouver. Those are probably going to be the only year-round markets that will operate in Canada. So the reality of, of winter is that as of November 15th, all of our scooters were off the road. They'll go back on the road in early April. Yep. Ah, the joys of Canada. If that's the case, right, where you've got such a kind of variable, weather is so determinant, especially in the scooter business, whether or not you think that that will force operators more towards a a kind of a subsidized model. One of the things that I see a, a lot happening in the space at the moment is the conversation around, hey, public re- governments are again, effectively going to say, we actually want the scooters. They're really useful. They s- help service us in the first last mile to all of our public transport connections, etc. But we don't necessarily, th- you know, w- what we're finding is that those businesses, for example, in, in places where you've only, you can only be on the street for half a year or half of the year, actually, it becomes very challenging to be able to operate good businesses in that manner. Whether or not you think that that will subsequently mean that governments turn around and start subsidizing services like, for example, uh, scooter services. Do you think that that's something that we're going to see coming down the pipe? You know, I have not thought of that. I don't think so. I think what you have to do as an operator is you have to you have to understand how you run effectively a seasonal business. And we're not the scooter business is not the first seasonal business to hit the world and need to find a way to to be able to operate. So I think what it means is that you build your business effectively that way. You recognize that you've got an operating season in the case of Canada for most of the cities operating sometime between, we'll say, April to November. And that's that's you know where you have to make your make your business work. Make hay while the sun shines. Yeah. But that's, you know, we we built a business around that. We think it's a very, very effective business. You know, like I said, this is not the first seasonal business to to be invented. Yeah, completely. I, I want to take a kind of a 30,000 foot view and ask your your take on how you think, you know, there's obviously been a lot of money put into this, uh, into the shared micromobility space. And oftentimes that's been predicated on expectations around growth 
you know, we've talked about it already, which is, you know, cities have decided to come around and start capping and saying, look, we're going to run pilot programs and this is how long it's going to run for. And this is a certain number of scooters that you're going to get. So it's capped our the, the early, what looks like really, really insane growth early on just meant that we can't effectively triple or quadruple or 10x our business necessarily. But on the other hand, you've got, yeah, because you have cities saying effectively, look, we have to absorb these things. We have to build the infrastructure for them. Do you think that there's a mismatch on that? In a wider sense, do you think that that's, a, that's something that can be reconciled between the capital that is looking to go enter into the space and the governments that are looking to, you know, obviously harness these these innovations? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not super concerned because I think that where we've seen this sort of rapid growth before constraints are put on it, you know, this has been in the leading markets as the industry has started. And as the new cities and the secondary markets start to come on, they're coming on in a more constrained fashion. So I don't really see it as if regulation is starting to pull the whole industry back. I just think it's sort of pulling some of the initial exuberance back. I think that the other thing that's going to happen is, you know, the markets are going to, you know, start to consolidate and winners will start to emerge. And I think that a lot of the smaller operators will just not be able to keep up in terms of the overall cost of, of running a network, you know, being able to build proprietary product, all the stuff that has to happen, which favors scale. And I think that you end up with, you know, a handful of operators who are the winners and, you know, who then have perpetual business taking place in each of those cities. And so I think it all evens itself out that way. I certainly hope so. I think there's a, my worry has been seeing the mismatch between what I have seen of, let's put it this way. When Uber and Lime, uh, when Uber and Lyft went public, I think there was a pub, there was a reaction in the public markets to like, hey, you've effectively tried to grow very substantially and we're no longer going to fund that. And, and that's why the prices have collapsed. And I, you know, I can see the same thing happening, which was oftentimes these were funded before that happened and whether or not there's going to be a kind of a, a rationalization in the market and, and investors just start saying, look, we, we don't think we can get a return from this in the, in the medium term and they stop funding it. And, and so, you know, Bird and Lime end up running out of cash and, and whether or not you think that that's a, uh, look, something I that- think- yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. And I think that there's a different correlation to, you know, what's happened to the rideshare companies post going public. I don't think we can, we can make the exact comparison. You know, there's a big argument for whether those companies stayed private too long. There's a big argument around the perpetual use of funds to effectively subsidize the service. And yeah. so I think the sooner that the micromobility operators uh, realize that they need to run a business. You know, when I order uh, food delivery, I thank the VCs, you know, who back the various food delivery companies for subsidizing my, my dinner. Although, you know, I don't know if you've experienced this, but I recently placed a $50 order that was $71 by the time all the service charges, delivery charges, and tip were added. So, yes. you know, something's just, it's just not going to end well there because, you know, it, it can't. And that brings up a whole nother story around why is a 3,000 pound car being used to deliver, you know, a, a two pound, you know, meal. I think that the point is, and, and, and I think what's really important for micromobility operators is to recognize that they need to run a business and that venture capital is not going to subsidize their business in perpetuity. Yeah, absolutely. If we're 
entering the world. And I look around and what's happening with SoftBank and WeWork and, and that it really has kind of put a lot of dampness, I think, on those businesses that typically are a little bit more capital intensive and are looking and, and don't run positive unit economics at the moment. As you're looking around to make further investments in micromobility, how is that impacting your decision making process or what the, or the things that you're looking for? Well, it, you know, it doesn't. Um, in a way, I'm, and I'm not happy that, you know, some of these things have occurred, but it didn't take a lot of, um, I don't need to be a rocket scientist to, to see that that story was not going to end well. You know, again, it's the same thing. But look, here, here's the thing. When we sit down with entrepreneurs across our entire portfolio, you can raise two or three or four million dollars and, you know, not do anything, not hire anybody and not spend any, any money and make that money last a you know, really, really long time. And that's just the wrong thing to do, obviously. But the flip side is that you really need to ask yourself, you know, what do I need to achieve to get to the next milestone of fundraising and how much is that going to cost? And what entrepreneurs need to need to do is to be very, very realistic about that. Now, if you got to $2 million in revenue and you're profitable, you know, good for you. But the question is, you know, like, what have you actually proven? And so I, I was actually on a, on a call with an entrepreneur this morning in a re- related to micromobility. We talked about their plan for 2020. And, you know, my comment was, the absolute amount of revenue that you're focused on generating next year is not really relevant. What, what is really relevant is that you've proven the unit economics work and you've proven, you know, then if they work here, how many, you know, cities can I expand to and what kind of multiplier can I put on top of that? And so that's what you have to do, right? But if yeah. you, if you cannot possibly, you know, complete a transaction profitably, then no amount of, of volume and scale is going to solve that, that problem. Yeah, completely. Well, I think it's a heartening move. I was at Uber for a long time. I, I felt like we did a pretty good job, at least in Australia and New Zealand, but we also weren't particularly, you know, it wasn't a deeply competitive market. I think it changes a lot when you're in a deeply competitive market for those sort of things. So it's, it's heartening to see the move towards unit economic profitability. I do want to ask, uh, just as one final question for us, what you would recommend for entrepreneurs looking to get into the micromobility space? I mean, obviously you're an investor, you're looking for, you're, you're looking for investments in the space. What are the things that you're looking for? And then for uh, entrepreneurs, it sounds like unit economics, uh, unit economic profitability is a big one. Uh, anything else? Well, oh, look, the, the advice that I give to an entrepreneur is, um, is the same advice that we give our entrepreneurs in all the sectors that we're looking at. And, and that is to make sure you're doing something that is fundamental and consequential and not incremental. So, you know, when Travis launched Bird, there was no shared scooter industry. And so his idea was what I'll call a fundamental and consequential idea. It's got to be new. It's got to be, you know, the potential to be really, really big. And it's got to solve a massive problem in a new way. And what happens is far too many people come to us and they pitch us on incremental ideas. And, you know, it's a modification of something that already exists. It's most likely undifferentiated. It's most likely indefensible. You know, I'll give you sort of a silly example of, uh, of that, but, you know, maybe somebody comes to us with, uh, we're going to have a tire change service for scooters. 
I'm, I'm just making this up, but it's, you know, it's like, how big can that really be? How big a problem is that really? Why can't the, the existing players, you know, fix scooter tires? So that's, that's the, the most fundamental piece of advice that I can give because I would say that the vast majority of people that come in to pitch us, the ideas are just incremental. And then I would say the second thing is to, you know, do your homework on the investor that you want to pitch before you pitch them. You know, make sure that they actually know what micromobility is. Make sure that they are investing in the space. And, you know, the partner at the firm is far more important than the firm. So just because you got a, an appointment at a firm doesn't necessarily mean anything because, you know, you've got to be in front of the right partner at that firm. So that's the advice that I, I give to all the entrepreneurs. Look, we're um, across my whole mobility investment portfolio. I'm invested in a company called Mojo, which is a connected car company. They've got about a million cars on the road. We've talked about Bird and Bird Canada. We've talked about Populous, um, an investor in a company in uh, San Francisco called PubNub. PubNub is the actual infrastructure for real-time messaging. If you ride a Peloton and you do a high five or you get any of the data that shows up on the screen, that all comes from, from PubNub. If you use many delivery services and ride hailing services around the world, the way the little car moves on the map, that's all facilitated by PubNub. So I'm looking at a whole range of things. I'm very, very interested in robotic delivery services. I'm very interested in a lot of the AI technology that's uh, being applied to the, to the industry. Also interested, you know, from a, a robotics and automation standpoint in, you know, broadly speaking, the movement of people and goods, but also applications and constrained environments as well. So. Okay. Oh, well, I, I want to, okay. Before we found, finish then, I do want to ask your take on uh, autonomous micromobility. So Tortoise and, and the others in the space. We've had uh, Dmitry Shevelenko on, but this idea of self-driving scooters, bullish, not bullish. Why, why not? Timeframes on delivery. I think he's very, very smart. He, he may be onto something. I'm not sure in, you know, the current form factor that, that that's exactly going to play out uh, the, the way he's envisaging it. But look, on the whole AV side of things, surprise, surprise, we're not going to have autonomous passenger vehicles anytime soon. However, it is entirely possible and very likely, and I've actually traveled across the country and, and been in demonstrations of a variety of vehicles that are uh, not in the car lane, that are you know much smaller, that uh, travel at slower speed, that use the full autonomous type stack that you would expect in a passenger vehicle to very effectively deliver goods to consumers. You know, I think that those types of autonomous vehicles are going to be on the road much sooner than I think unmanned scooters repositioning themselves. Although, again, to, to the point, people think that it can't be done. That's a big check mark. I love that because anytime someone says it can't be done, let's look really deep. It's a huge problem, you know, to rebalance the scooter fleet. So if you can figure out how to do that, then it's going to be, you know, quite meaningful. But the, the flip side to that is you've got to figure out how to, you know, what kind of business model you're going to have and, and do the people that have all of the scooters, are they going to, going to pay you for that invention? And so you got to make sure that the whole thing doesn't erode down to, you know, something that, that doesn't work at the end of the day. 
Yeah, no, I hear you on that. Excellent. Look, Kevin, this has been a great chat. Thank you so much for your time. If people want to find you, are you on Twitter? I'm on Twitter at, at Talbot, T-A-L-B-O-T. Excellent. That's great. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation.